Well, please uh, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel. Uh, The book of 2 Samuel, we're going to go to chapter 7. Uh, These words will also be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. We are are continuing in our sermon series which we've called Living Theology. We're talking about theology, what we believe about God, about people, about life, about sin, about salvation. Uh, But it's living theology because we hope that it will be deeply practical and relevant and important to how we think and how we act in the world. Tonight we're thinking about the theme of Jesus being our King, and as we do that, let's read 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 1 to 17. After the king, that's David, was settled in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Amen. Well, I've just finished reading a great biography on Hudson Taylor. Uh, He was a missionary in the 1800s 
uh, he had this burning desire to take the good news of Jesus to China, to inland China where people had never heard about Jesus. And Hudson Taylor and his team, they went on this mission because Jesus called them to. You might remember those words Jesus said before he left earth, go and make disciples of all nations. And Jesus added these mighty words, all authority has been given to me. I am with you always. And and so Hudson Taylor, he went with the confidence that King Jesus would go with him all the way. And it didn't take long to realize that this mission actually was going to struggle all the way. In fact, everything seemed to go wrong. Even before their team landed in China, they encountered such a violent typhoon that their ship nearly sank. They were way off course. They arrived days late. It was, it was almost as if nature itself was determined on keeping them from getting to China. And then when at last they did land, Hudson's team of missionaries began to fall apart within themselves from bitter divisions. Uh, if these Christians couldn't even work together, how were they ever going to reach the people around them. Hudson's wife, Maria, wrote these words. We have come to fight Satan, and he will not let us alone. And she was right. In fact, soon after this, the people in the city where they were living in Yangchow attacked the missionaries. They caused this terrible riot. They set fire to their mission home. Uh, Maria and some of the other women and children were hiding in an upstairs room and the only way they could escape from the fire was to jump from the window down to the ground and many of them sustained serious injuries in the process. And you just got to think, what is going on here? Where was Jesus when they needed him? Where was his power? Why does this mission look so pathetically weak? And sometimes we find ourselves asking similar questions, don't we? Maybe our experiences aren't quite as intense and dangerous as Hudson Taylor's, but we still experience many setbacks and discouragements. We might wonder why our world has changed so little in the 2,000 years since Jesus came. We wonder why he hasn't created the world of peace and justice and righteousness that he promised he would. We wonder why there are still so many people who aren't saved. We wonder why our attempts to spread the gospel and grow the church seem so pathetic. I asked these hard questions when the church plant that I'd been part of for seven years had to close. And in that moment, it was very easy to think that we had failed and that Jesus had failed. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, well, yeah, this is actually exactly my problem with Christianity. You know, it talks a big game about this amazing King Jesus and the amazing kingdom that he's bringing. It's going to change the world, but honestly, I, I don't see it. It's an important question. Is Jesus really king? And if so, where is his kingdom? That's what we want to think about tonight, the kingship of Jesus. 
And as we think about this, we're really wrestling with something that every single person who met Jesus also wrestled with. Almost everyone who met Jesus was confused by what kind of king he was. And that's our first point tonight, a confusing king, a confusing king. In Mark 1, Jesus is anointed as king and his baptism, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he, he strides into town, into Galilee. Mark 1 verse 15, he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And again and again, Jesus goes around proclaiming good news. The kingdom is here. And the Jews get excited. Jesus is obviously an amazing man. He's, he's full of power and authority. And many of them gladly welcome him, him as king. When he arrives in Jerusalem which is the city where the Jewish king would have lived and ruled, we read this in Luke 19. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They realized what was happening. They knew their Old Testament scriptures. They knew that passage we just read in 2 Samuel 7. They knew God made this incredible promise, this covenant with King David. He said, David, you will have a descendant and his throne will last forever. It will be an eternal kingdom. They also knew that again and again and again, the kings who came after David had failed. They had ignored God, they had led the people astray, and eventually it had gotten so bad that they had been ripped from their thrones by foreign nations and dragged into exile. And it was totally humiliating. And even now, the monarchy is still in tatters because Israel was under occupation by the Roman Empire. They still didn't have a king on the throne. But they also knew that God wasn't done with them. God's promise to David lived on. The prophet Isaiah had given them these amazing words. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. You might know them. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. It's an epic promise saying, I'm still going to do what I said I would do. And now, here he is, surely. Look at Jesus, this powerful, miracle-working leader who has been gathering followers for three years and now he's rocking up to Jerusalem on a colt just like a king would have done. Hopes are high. He's going to settle down in Jerusalem. He's going to raise up an army and he's going to kick the Romans out. It's going to be awesome. But there's, there's a problem. Because those who listen closely to Jesus' teaching realized that this kingdom he kept talking about, it was pretty complicated. It was actually quite surprising. In Luke 17, the, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when's the kingdom going to come? And Jesus replied, 
The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. What, what did he mean by that? It's in your midst. And what did Jesus mean when he said to Pilate, when he was on trial in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, that leads us to our second point. We've seen that Jesus is a confusing king. Now we see that he is a spiritual king. A spiritual king. Jesus says God's kingdom can't be observed. It's not here or there. It's, it's in your midst. Why? Because Jesus is in your midst. The kingdom is here because the king is here. Don't go looking for a castle with a moat. Look for the man. In his life, in his actions, in his words, Jesus was showing people the kingdom. Do you want to see God's kingdom? Well, look at, look at Jesus. Look at how he loves and obeys God. That's what all the kings of Israel were meant to do. That's why Israel's first king, Saul, was such a failure. Because as he grew more and more powerful, he, he stopped listening to God. Saul's replacement, David, he was, he was a better man. We're told he was a man after God's own heart. But then even he proved that he was riddled with sin. You might remember the terrible Bathsheba incident. Now, now look at Jesus. Look at how perfectly he loves his father and, and obeys him. And look at how he uses his power not to take from the people, not to accumulate his own wealth and power, but to serve the people for their benefit. This is a servant king. He rules for the good of the people. He protects God's people. He leads them in paths of righteousness. Isn't, isn't that what we need in a good leader? In our world of self-interested governments and, and big corporations, don't we long for someone with moral integrity who will do what's good for the people? Okay, so Jesus says, the kingdom is in your midst because I'm in your midst. But what about us now, today, here, now that Jesus has ascended to heaven... Well, even today, the kingdom is in our midst. It's a spiritual kingdom that lives in the hearts of every single Christian. Where is the kingdom of God in the world today? Well, it's in each of us. Each of us who enthrone Jesus as king of our lives. Each of us who have the spirit of God living in us. It's a spiritual kingdom. Paul says in Romans 14 verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it's not physical like that, but of, of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, this, this king, it doesn't grow by military invasions and diplomatic agreements. It grows by the Word and the Spirit. It grows by hearts, one to Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you might remember this, no, no one can 
enter or even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Which means that none of us are automatically part of this kingdom when we're born as babies. Something drastic has to happen for us to have Jesus as our king. We have to have a complete spiritual rebirth. Now, let's, let's pause there for a second because there might be a question in your mind. This is a bit of a side note, but it's worth us thinking about it for a second. You might be asking, isn't God the king of everyone? Isn't the whole world his kingdom? And, and in a broad sense, that's exactly right. Our triune God is king of all, isn't he? He reigns over the whole universe. We saw that in Psalm 99. And as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God shares in that dominion right from the beginning. But when we talk about Jesus being king, we're referring to something a little different to this, a little narrower. We're referring to the fact that God has given to his Son a special kingship. Not just as the divine son, but as the incarnate God-man. Not just king over all people, because God created them. But king over a specific people, the church, because God saved them. Links back to what we talked about last week. We were talking about the work of a mediator. This, this person who comes in between God and humans. We saw that the, the prophet reveals God to the people. We saw that the priest reconciles, saves the people. And we saw that the king, that's what we're looking at tonight, the king rules over them. We're talking about how Jesus is specifically the king of his people, the people he has saved and ushered into this kingdom of grace. If you got lost, welcome back. We're still talking about how Jesus is a spiritual king. He's a spiritual king who rules over a spiritual kingdom. You won't find it on a map. You'll find it in the church. In every heart here where he is enthroned as king. That's why in Mark 1 verse 15, immediately after Jesus said, The kingdom of God has come near... He goes on to say, repent and believe the good news. That's how we enter the kingdom. We repent and believe the good news. But what exactly is this good news? That leads us to our third point. We've seen that Jesus is a confusing king, a spiritual king. Now third, Jesus is a victorious king, a victorious king. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to deafening cheers, to royal celebrations. And then everything goes horribly wrong. I mean, as bad as it could possibly go. This so-called king is arrested and he's unfairly tried. He's clothed in a king's purple robe. He gets a, a, a crown on his head. People bow down and pay homage to him. But the crown is made of thorns. The people gathered around him are soldiers and they're striking his head 
with a staff and they spit on him. And they call out mockingly, Hail, the King of the Jews! And then they crucify him. And as, as he hangs there, people walk past and they, they yell out insults. Save yourself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And his followers scatter in fear and sorrow. And Jesus dies with these ironic mocking words above his head. The King of the Jews. A victorious king, not even slightly, politically, socially, strategically, this is a complete failure. Or is it? Could this actually be the moment where our king fought his greatest battle and achieved his greatest victory? How could that be? Because our servant king conquers not by the sword, but by suffering. In that moment, he rescues his people, you and me, from our three greatest enemies. What are they? Sin. He bears our punishment and gives us his righteousness. Death. He dies our death and gives us eternal life. And Satan. He severs the head of the dragon and leads us out of captivity. Jesus rose from the dead three days later and he secured freedom for all his people. Freedom for everyone who says, that should have been my death. He died for my sin. He rose to set me free. He's my king. That's repentance and faith. And from that moment on, his victory is ours, is yours. We're free from guilt, from hell, from Satan's enslaving power. And friends, we continue to live in that freedom because Jesus continues to live. He has ascended and he's reigning in heaven. He's reigning in glory. That's our fourth point. A glorious king. A glorious king. Ephesians 1, verse 20. God has raised Christ from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. That, that's the essence of what it means for Jesus to be our king. He is the head over everything for the church. The head over everything for the church. Everything in our whole universe, every atom, every random event, every tragedy, every government, every demon, every angel, all of it has come under the authority of Christ for the specific purpose of making sure that every single person who trusts in him will be carried home. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes it like this. Question 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. 
Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So Hudson Taylor was right. God, Jesus did send him out with all authority and he did go with him. From a human perspective, it really didn't look like much. In fact, it looked like constant opposition and it looked like sin and weakness. But Hudson and his wife Maria knew that King Jesus would protect them and he would grow his kingdom. And they knew that that was not the same thing as saying that God would just give them absolutely everything they wanted, prosper every single one of their plans, make sure that they never got hurt and they never got killed. No, they knew that whether through their lives or through their deaths, Jesus would use them to grow his kingdom. After Maria leapt from that two-story building and still faint from loss of blood, she wrote this, God was our stay. This confidence he gave me, that he would surely work good for China out of our deep distress. What, what about you? What about us? What, what struggles, what discouragements are in our lives at the moment? Moments where we wonder if Jesus really is king, really has got it under his control. Well, if you've made him your king, then in the midst of everything, with absolute confidence, you can say, all is well. I have been raised with Christ. My life is now hidden with him and God. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, I also will appear with him in glory. It's Colossians 3. Isn't that the sweetest comfort? If you're not a Christian, I wonder, I wonder where you will find a comfort like that. Where will you cast your anchor when storms come? Who has your back? It leads us to our fifth point. We mustn't miss the obvious. If we want Jesus to be our king, we actually need to make him our king. So we've seen Jesus is a confusing king, a spiritual king, a victorious king, a glorious king. Now, fifth, we see that Jesus is the only king. The only king. If there is no one greater, and there is no one wiser, and there is no one more glorious, then you owe Jesus your total allegiance, your total obedience and loyalty. And so do I. Tim Keller puts it like this. When you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. You have to give up the right to say, I will obey you if, I will do this if, as soon as you say, I will obey you if. That is not obedience at all. You are saying, you are my advisor, not my Lord. I'll be happy to take your recommendations, and I might even do some of them. 
No, says Keller. If you want Jesus to be with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. End quote. Jesus is enthroned in heaven right now. There's no doubt about that. But is he enthroned in your life, in your heart? That's the real question. Perhaps you've given most of it to him. 90%. But what are you still holding on to? What am I unwilling to let go of? Isn't he worthy of it all? And one day he will return and he will demand that every single person bow before him. He will demand our worship because only he deserves it. And we will give it to him. Christian, Muslim, agnostic, atheist. We'll give it to him. Not because we're forced to, but because we finally see the king in all his unveiled splendor. And we will be utterly convinced of his worthiness. Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above Every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our sixth and final point. Jesus is a returning king. The kingdom has already come. It's in our midst. But it hasn't yet come in full. We haven't yet seen it in all its majesty and glory. One day he'll come back and we will see that. It will come and fall. All will be judged when he comes back. Revelation 20 says that anyone whose names are not found written in the book of life will be thrown in the lake of fire. And then the people of the king will stand vindicated, triumphant, and it says we will reign with him on earth. On that day, God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that we read before will be perfectly fulfilled where it says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And on that day, none of us are going to wonder anymore. Is Jesus actually reigning? Is his kingdom actually growing? Is serving Jesus actually worth it? We will see his glory. And we will see the many, many millions and millions of people who he has been saving and guarding and protecting for thousands of years. We'll see Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor will see the millions of Chinese people who were saved because of his ministry when he died thinking it had been pretty underwhelming, not much of a success. On that day, we'll see justice done. We'll see evil crushed. We'll see worldwide peace. We'll see joy and laughter in every place. 
And it will be so good, it will fill our hearts to bursting and we'll long for it forevermore, so much so that all we'll be able to do is fall on our knees and cry out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator, who comes in between God and us and meets all of our needs. We thank you that he is our prophet who reveals your truth, reveals you, reveals the way to be saved. We thank you that he's our priest who paid the sacrifice for all our sins and now intercedes and prays for us at your right hand. And we thank you that he is our king, as we've seen tonight. Thank you that he reigns, that he rules, that he rescues and defends, that the church is his, and that nothing in this whole universe will prevail against it. That he is dead set on bringing all of us home to live in his glorious kingdom forever. And Lord, this is such good news. It fills our hearts to bursting. We thank you and praise you that this is your, your plan and your work in our lives. And Lord, we want to share it. We want to see others come into this kingdom and have a future of peace and righteousness and justice. So we pray, King Jesus, continue to spread the glory of your name. We pray that we might see more and more knees bowing before you, not on Judgment Day, but right now, here at Riverbank, that we might have the privilege of seeing people giving their lives to the King and discovering that He really is the greatest. Glorify your name, we pray. Amen.